Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the third Sunday after the Epiphany of our Lord. That's January 22nd, 2023. And this week we are looking at the Gospel lesson for the upcoming Sunday, Epiphany 3. That's Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And in one way, that's a really interesting selection of verses for one gospel reading because it bridges between two big parts of Matthew's gospel. You can divide up Matthew's gospel in different ways. Uh, One way is to divide it into three parts. The first part is the presentation of Jesus, his his birth, his his early years, what we know of him up through his temptation, because all of that is before he, he begins his public ministry. And so that part of Matthew, uh, Matthew, uh, the, the presentation of Jesus is from chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, 16. So that's the end of that is part of our gospel reading for today. The next part of Matthew is the longest part of Matthew, and that is from 417 to 1620, and that's Jesus' ministry in Israel and the opposition that he faces. And the beginning of that section is also part of our gospel reading for today. The, uh, the final part of Matthew then is, is uh, kind of his road to the cross, his suffering and death, uh, his resurrection, and, and uh, then his, his uh, sending of the apostles to all nations before he ascends into heaven. That starts at 16 verse 21 and, and goes through the end of the gospel. So again, this um, gospel lesson for the upcoming Sunday is bridging the first two parts of Matthew. It's the end of his preparation for public ministry and then the beginning of his public ministry as well. So um, with that, just a little bit of immediate background. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. That's at the end of chapter 3. And then he, uh, he is tempted by, by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness. That's chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And then we arrive at this passage that we study today. Now, when Jesus was baptized, of course, you and I know that he's baptized in the place of sinners. But it's a pretty glorious moment as the heavens open, as the Spirit descends, and as, uh, as the Father cries out that Jesus is his beloved Son. And as soon as Jesus is baptized and he goes and he, he faces off against the devil and he defeats the devil soundly, he resists all temptation, he's not even close to sinning. So as the first part of Matthew wraps up, it looks like Jesus' reign and his ministry are going to be glorious and powerful and victorious without any setbacks along the way. And so our gospel reading begins with a bit of a plot twist for the one who's reading this gospel for the first time. It begins with saying, Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now John the Baptist, of course, was preparing the way for Jesus. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He's the one who baptizes Jesus. 
And so the fact that he's arrested might take the uh, the reader aback the first time through, because if Jesus' reign is going to be so glorious and powerful and victorious, how come John gets arrested? How come John gets, gets taken by Herod and thrown in prison? And of course, this sets the theme that will culminate at Calvary, that Jesus' reign, his, his work as king in his public ministry, is to get us into heaven by taking our place in suffering and death. And so John the Baptist's arrest and eventual execution foreshadowed Jesus' own arrest and execution. So Jesus withdraws into Galilee, but this is not to escape arrest. Rather, we read, is to fulfill prophecy. The gospel reading continues, and, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. All right, so, so Jesus goes to Galilee to fulfill this prophecy. It's from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It's, uh, it's actually part of the Old Testament lesson for this upcoming Sunday. We'll take a brief look at that at the end. And it fulfills the prophecy that, that upon this Galilee of the Gentiles, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the light dawns. Now, this is a significant prophecy for a few reasons. One is that... Galilee, or northern Israel, was sort of the gateway for invaders. So when the Assyrians came through and took the ten tribes of Israel and utterly destroyed Samaria and the northern ten tribes, they came in from the north through Galilee. So Galilee was kind of known, um, or that, that area was, was known in the Old Testament as sort of the buffer that would take the hit, absorb the first strike, while, say, the people around Jerusalem had more time to prepare for the invading armies. In the wake of Assyria's destruction of northern Israel, the region of Galilee, Isaiah makes this prophecy that that area will be restored, that the people who dwell there in the darkness following that devastation, they will see a great light. And so the restoration of Galilee takes place, at least begins to take place here in Matthew chapter 4, because the king has arrived. The, uh, the son of God in the flesh now walks among the people of, of, of Galilee, of, of northern Israel. Second, along with being kind of that buffer for invading armies that takes the first hit, Galilee is known as Galilee of the Gentiles. I've kind of called it the low-rent district of Israel before. Um, down in, in Judea, close to Jerusalem, that's, uh, that, that's where um, the, uh, the rich and powerful tend to live. Um, demographically, there are far more Jews than Gentiles down around Jerusalem. Up north in Galilee, it's much more of a mix of Jews and Gentiles both. 
And the fact that Jesus chooses to begin his public ministry of, of, of preaching and healing in Galilee signals that he is the Savior for all nations. So he begins his public ministry among um, Jews and Gentiles, both among all nations, so to speak. And then at the very end of the gospel, he will send out his apostles to make disciples of all nations. So, so a, ni- a couple nice bookends to Jesus' public ministry there. The, uh, the th- a third point about this prophecy is that Isaiah chapter 9, 1 and 2, that's quoted here, is part of another Emmanuel prophecy. Remember when when the angel visits Joseph at the start of Matthew to assure him that Mary has been faithful, that that her baby is a son of God, we hear that that he is to be named Jesus. And then Matthew quotes from Isaiah that Jesus is also to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When we get to Isaiah chapter 9 for a quick look there about maybe one or two things we don't talk about here, the the way that the people of Galilee see this great light is because, um, says Isaiah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and this child is everlasting God. So, The first part of Matthew begins with the announcement that Emmanuel is about to be born. And now at the end of part one, we hear um, that the light shines in Galilee because of the child Jesus born there. And he is known as mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So it's, it's, it's an important prophecy that marks the end of the section. It's the fifth time already that Matthew has quoted the Old Testament. Um, and... Uh, and now we are set for his public ministry to begin with the announcement that God with us is in the flesh, walking among the people of Galilee. There's an interesting sequence then in, in part one of Matthew in chapters one through four, verse 16. Actually, just, just with uh, from 3.13 on, his baptism up to now... So part one concludes with Jesus in the place of sinners at his baptism. After that, he's tested by Satan in the wilderness. And remember, Satan keeps saying to him, if you are the son of God. Once Satan leaves, Jesus is ministered to by angels who appear. And then we have here, God with us is in Galilee, among Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, at the end of the gospel, you end up with the same sequence. Once again, you have Jesus in the place of sinners, not at his baptism, but now on the cross, which is his his greater baptism that he suffers. So you have Jesus in the place of sinners again. Then instead of Satan crying out, if you are the son of God, the crowds are crying out, if you are the Christ, save yourself, come down from the cross. Once that suffering is over, angels appear again, not to minister to Jesus, but to announce that he is risen from the dead. And then where where we had God with us in Galilee before, now Jesus sends the disciples to all nations, promising, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So another, another Emmanuel, I am with you statement right there. So that concludes part one of Matthew's gospel. And all of this is written by Matthew by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to prepare us for Jesus' public ministry. And that begins in our gospel reading with verse 17. And there we read, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus began to preach. That's officially the start of his public ministry. And so now we get a summary of Jesus' message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message that John the Baptist was preaching before. And now the kingdom of heaven is even more at hand because the king is at hand beginning his public ministry. So repent. Stop believing what is wrong and believe what is true, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because here is the king. We may not think about it this way too often, but um, imagine for a second you're, you're, uh, you're splitting wood with a wedge and hammer. So you drive the wedge in and, and gradually as you, as you hit the, uh, the wedge with that sledgehammer again and again, it drives the wedge further and further into the stump, into the piece of wood until it splits apart. I kind of have that imagery in mind with, with this announcement of Jesus right here because with this announcement he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's breaking into time like that wedge would break into a stump. And and the the the, the stump finally splits apart on the last day. So it has yet the kingdom of heaven has yet to be fully revealed. It begins with Jesus' public ministry as he makes this announcement. It concludes on the last day. It's breaking into time a bit, bit more uh, with each miracle that Jesus performs during his public ministry. And the kingdom of heaven, the reign of heaven, is breaking into this world each time we hear God's word. Each time another is baptized, each time we receive the Lord's Supper, the kingdom of heaven is coming into that world a little bit more on the way to the last day when Jesus returns again in glory and we see with our eyes the King of Heaven at hand. All right, so Jesus begins his public ministry with these words, and then we read, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, that's a really abrupt career change for 
Peter and Andrew and for James and John. And so some have tried to soften it by saying um, from the Gospel of John, we know that Jesus was already um, talking to disciples before, before his public ministry began, you know, the, at the wedding of Cana and all of that. So these men might have already had some contact with Jesus before this day. Nevertheless, it's still an abrupt change And it demonstrates that Jesus has remarkable authority, and he exercises that through his word. He calls upon these four men to leave what they have and follow him, and they do. So why do they follow? Well, he's he's commanded them by his word, yes, but also they believe. At least they believe somewhat. I mean, some have argued that the disciples already at this point have this this clear conviction of who Jesus is and what he will do. Although the way the disciples act and speak, bungling throughout the gospel, it's hard to believe that that's true at this point. Others have said they're, they're, they're kind of oblivious to everything and don't really believe yet. They just hear a guy say, follow me, and they do. Again, without any sort of faith, they would reject Jesus' invitation. And so they believe in Jesus enough to know that they're sinners who need his grace. And so they follow him. Now, as they follow him, who do they represent? And I bring up this question because... In the Gospels, when the disciples are doing things, people will ask, do the disciples represent just the 12 apostles? Or do they represent all believers? And for some reason, in my experience, that question especially gets asked when people are looking at the Gospel of Matthew. So, for instance, at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sees the crowds goes up on a mountain, and his disciples come to listen to him. So is Jesus preaching to the crowds, or does he leave the crowds and go up the mountain and preach only to the 12 disciples? There's discussion about that. Likewise, at the end of the gospel, when Jesus tells the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, Is he telling all Christians that they're supposed to be going out to all nations? Or is he commanding the apostles specifically to do that and pastors who follow in in their stead to continue the work? Well, those are discussions for another time. For now, our question is, when Jesus calls these four men, is he calling them to be apostles or is this, uh, are they representative of, of, of the 12, in other words, or are they representative of, of all believers? And you can make arguments either way. I mean, all four of them will become apostles. And Jesus specifically calls them to be fishers of men, to, to catch men to live, as Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Luke, and that is the vocation of the apostle. And unlike many other believers who, um, who believe in Jesus but stay where they are, these four men will literally follow Jesus around for the rest of his public ministry. 
so on those points, it would seem that the representative of the apostles in following Jesus, on the other hand, the vocabulary, the, the words used might indicate the other way. Jesus calls these four men, says the Greek, he also calls many people to follow him. Likewise, when Jesus says, follow me or come after me is closer to the, the original language, that's a, an invitation he extends to others who are not apostles too. So that's kind of an argument that they represent all believers. I'm going to decide what he's calling them here to be numbered among the 12 apostles. But that question gets asked and answered and explored a few more times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Just uh, at this point, be aware that the discussion is there. All right, now that Jesus has his first four uh, disciples, we read a bit about his, his ministry. We've heard his sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we hear what he does along with preaching. We read... And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus' public ministry is, first off, preaching the news of repentance and the kingdom. That's what he's doing when he teaches in the synagogues. That's what he's doing when he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And along with preaching, he's performing a bunch of miracles. He heals every disease and affliction, and the list is really varied. You've got diseases, you've got pains, you have demons, seizures, paralysis. He heals them all. Now, if you're writing a book on ailments, medical problems, you're probably not going to lump demon possession and, say, paralysis together. Matthew lumps them all together because all of these are the effects of the curse of sin. So as Jesus preaches that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world, he demonstrates that the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world because he's, he's getting rid of, of the curse of sin. He's forgiving sins. He's healing diseases to save the people. And in doing so... He's also giving us a, a little glimpse, a tiny hint of the last day when he raises all of his people from the dead and heals all their diseases and afflictions and delivers them into his kingdom of heaven gloriously forever. So with each miracle here, we see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven breaking in a little bit more. And the one who is doing this is Jesus. Note, by the way, as he proclaims and heals throughout Galilee, that he picks up followers and heals people from Syria, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. 
Now, Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, of course, mean his fellow Jews. Syria, the Decapolis, and beyond the Jordan, all of those are Gentile regions. So from the very start, Jesus isn't just ministering to the Jews, even that's even if that's his, his priority, he still cares for Jews and Gentiles at the same time. Furthermore, the crowd isn't all believers. They might just be curious, they might be there for the show, but at least they want to know more. And from the crowds who gather, when Jesus proclaims his saving gospel, many will hear and believe follow him, whether they stay in the same place or not, and they will be saved. All right. So, so this gospel reading is great. It's this transition from Jesus' preparation for his public ministry to beginning his public ministry to proclaim and to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven has broken into the world. And you and I rejoice that it's still breaking into the world today. I think we've pretty much said what, uh, what we need to about the Old Testament lesson, looking at that prophecy, but just to read through it one more time and add a little. Again, Isaiah in chapter 9 is, is, is writing in the wake of the Assyrian invasion and devastation of the northern kingdom. The ten tribes will never be seen again. The Assyrians have... have destroyed Samaria, leveled the city, taken off the people into, into slavery and exile and captivity, and they are simply erased from the map. For those who remain, it's, it's devastating. There is despair. There is loss. There is mourning. They're surrounded by death. And in that terrible time, Isaiah declares in chapter 9, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And what is this glory that they see? The prophecy Isaiah says is the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." So where the survivors of the Assyrian invasion are are devastated, they're in anguish, they're mourning, and they are few because most have been taken off into captivity, Isaiah declares that the darkness will end. They will see a great light and the nation will be multiplied. And truly, the people of God are multiplied in that Jesus comes to gather both Jews and Gentiles of all nations into his kingdom And that increases our joy in God's faithfulness because the harvest is so great. The yoke of captivity is thrown off, not captivity to the Assyrians, rather captivity to sin and death. 
When this great light shines, the people know that restoration and deliverance have come. Well, how do they know that restoration and deliverance are, are there? What form does this light take? That's the, uh, the prophecy that follows in verses 5 through 7. And it reads, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, this deliverance will not come by means of a great army, a great military victory, a, a political messiah who drives out some evil empire. Instead, the deliverance comes like this in verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So says Isaiah, to see the light, look for a child who is born, a child who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in our gospel reading today, that child is now a man, Mighty God in the flesh, and he comes to deliver his people not by tramping boots and garments rolled in blood, but by preaching good news with his holy word, by healing diseases and casting out demons, by taking the place of sinners to die and rise again. The kingdom of heaven has come, it's broken into the world, and now Jesus' public ministry is underway. All right, that is a quick look at our gospel reading for this week from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. God grant you every good gift as you continue to meditate upon this text. God grant you every blessing if you're teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the peace of the Lord be with you. Goodbye.